Hello to all of you out there. I am Ulrike Seminati, host of the podcast Empowering Female Leaders for Women Who Want to Thrive. Every week you will get new perspectives, exciting insights, and empowering messages of women from all over the globe. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Empowering Female Leaders. I am pleased to welcome today Dr. Saida Jafar, currently serving as Senior Vice President and Group Country Manager for the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC region. Saida's leadership and expertise of 20 years have enabled her to expertly deliver pragmatic and practical solutions to strategic issues, drive bottom line impact and achieve rapid results. Saida also currently serves as a member of the Board of Trustees at Kuwait University. She has previously served as a non-executive board member at the United Arab Bank and Ishraq, a hospitality company. She has also served as an advisory board member at the Bahrain Fintech Bay. Over her professional career, Saida has worked in the Middle East, Europe and the US on a wide range of strategic, M&A and performance-related issues with clients across a range of industries. While specializing in financial services, including universal banks, private banks, investment banks, private equity firms, sovereign wealth funds, government institutions, and family-owned businesses. Saida is an Emirati national and earned a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering from Boston University, where she was the valedictorian. She earned a master's degree and a doctorate in chemical engineering from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT. Welcome, Saida. I'm very pleased to have you today in my podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> You're coming from a biomedical and chemical engineering background. What brought you to financial services? <laughs> It's a very good question. When I was finishing up my doctoral work, I like uh, Most good doctoral candidates started thinking about what next. And I looked at various opportunities, looked at academia, looked at going into industry, but in research, and also looked at what we called non-traditional career trajectories. Consulting was one of them. And the more I learned about consulting, frankly, the more I found it to be interesting. So very early on, I made the decision that I wanted to go into consulting. And when I started consulting, it was much more focused on uh, pharmaceuticals, which was very, very closely linked to what I did. Now, lucky for me that uh, one of the core tenants at McKinsey at the time was that you had to diversify so that early on in your career had to look at other industries. So I got the opportunity to work in multiple different industries very, very early on from pharma to financial services, to public sector, to healthcare, you name it. And frankly, in the first two, three years, based on the kind of work that we did and the kind of exposures I got, I just found the financial services industry extremely fascinating. Yeah, I just thought it was just great. There was a lot of change that was just starting to come into play. And you could almost see it all the way back then that, you know, the, the, the frameworks and the groundwork for a lot of the disruption that we see today was being laid. And, you know, as they say, 
one thing led to another and somehow I uh, found myself deep, deep in financial services. Yeah, it's often like that. I think that successful careers start at a certain point and then a little bit by coincidence, you come to something where you then stay in and excel over time, actually. It's very interesting <laughs> because many people start their career and they don't know exactly what they will do. They don't have a vision for the next 20 years or a very clear career goal. Did you have a very clear goal when you started your career? Oh, every good consultant will say the same, right? We start off being a consultant for two to three years until you figure out what you want to do. And then you go ahead and you do it. So did I have a very clear path? I, I think I would be amiss if I said absolutely every single step was planned. I think I followed a couple of guiding principles, which were do what I found truly exciting and what I was passionate about, worked with good people, worked in organizations that I felt shared my values play in places where I could continuously learn, develop, and grow. And I think that was what was much more important for me as opposed to a specific industry or a specific role or a specific title. And I've been lucky and I've been blessed that I've had the opportunity to work in some amazing organizations, including the one that I'm in today work with some fantastic people who have all shaped my journey and helped me get where I am today. So, you know, I think uh, from a, what I was hoping to get to, to being true to myself and to be really working on things that I was passionate about. Absolutely. I think that has stayed constant, but the specifics I would say have changed along the way. Would you say that you were able to take the decisions along the way according to what you're passionate about each and every time? Because it's a great way of decision making, I think, to shape your career according to what you really love to do, to enjoy your work, because we spend so much time at work. But for many people, that's not so easy because it takes always courage. If you're in a situation where this condition is not fulfilled, then you have to take potentially a risky decision, or at least people think it's a risky decision. Were you ever in that situation where you thought, oh God, I'm not really well off here, but I'm hesitating. I'm a bit shying away from now taking a decision to move to something else or to make a big change? Look, every decision, and especially if it's a big decision, has its pros and cons, right? It's rare that there will be one outcome that is so heavily predominantly the obvious quote unquote right outcome. So I think every decision has that trade-off. And yes, absolutely, you know, that's been the case over my last many years. Moving back to the region was, for example, one such decision. Moving from one firm to another was a decision. Moving from consulting into industry was another decision, right? And again, I just want to be very clear, right? Just because I'm passionate about something is not reason enough to do it. I think for me, it's a prerequisite. It's not, that's it, and then you jump. So a decision has to be very considered and very thoughtful, at least for me, the big decisions. And usually when I would make a big decision, I would try to include people I trust and whose opinions I value. And I would share what I'm thinking with them. I would solicit their feedback and try to put together something that makes sense holistically. But again, just me being passionate about it is a prerequisite. It's not necessarily the only thing.
Mm -hmm. So if you have that, then you can go a step further and then you start a decision-making process. Let's speak a little bit about decision-making because for many people, that's not something that they do easily, especially when it comes to bigger and riskier decisions. Are you then listening to your intuition a lot? Are you weighing the pros and cons before? Are you only weighing the pros and cons and asking other people? What is your way of, you know, what's this mix? We all have a mix of what comes in and what plays a role and something has the final word at the end. We do. We do. So look, there are many ways to make a decision. And I don't think there is one right answer for anyone. And even if I think about my own decision-making process, it has changed over time based on the outcome or the kind of decision I'm making and the who else it impacts. I, I think perhaps the way I would make it is different. But typically the way I see it is that there is a purely rational decision and then there is an emotional part of the decision. And they both need to be considered. And it, for me at least, you can't have one without the other. But what I don't like to do is mix the two. So as much as possible, I like to understand from a very, very uh, almost, you know, systematic way, what is the um, purely non-emotional part of the decision-making? Pros and cons, advantages, disadvantages, what works, what doesn't work. Come up with that. Then equally understand what are the emotional ramifications of this decision and then put it together, which I guess you could say is uh, probably a little bit more less emotional, just the fact the way I put it together and how I'm describing it, but it's just what works for me, right? And then the other thing I always like to do is once I've made a decision, take a moment, step back, think about it, reflect on it. And if depending on the time scales a little bit later, I still feel the same way, then that's a good decision. And then that's probably something to go with. Nobody makes 100% decisions 100% of the time. You know, there's always things that you can learn and you could do better in hindsight. But uh, I think for the most part, I'm happy, I think, uh, with how things have worked out. So it's certainly the right way to take your decisions <laughs> for you, <laughs> which is good. For me, exactly. And it's different for everyone, right? But for me, it's worked. Yeah, exactly. I think it's important to find this right mix of making a decision. Some completely ignore if they have an intuition, for example. If you don't have one, there's nothing to ignore, obviously. But if you have one, then yeah, I think it's something you should not ignore. And on the other hand, some are very intuitive, jumping on the first thing without reflecting on the more rational area. I think it's good to have a, a mix of both without, like you say, mingling them. You look at yes. them separately because then you get different information from these two areas and then you have to take a decision somehow. Yes in between. You know, what's funny is you asked about intuition, right? So when I was younger, I would almost say, no, you know, intuition is just gut feeling and one shouldn't necessarily spend too much time on intuition. As I've grown and progressed, one thing I've realized more and more is intuition, is, yes, it may be your gut reaction, but it's gut reaction that's built on some kind of hard wiring over the years. So it's equally just as important to understand what your intuition is saying, but also why. Why is my intuition actually saying or making me think this versus that? And often if you kind of step back and you think about it, sometimes you realize that there are Things that you're, you know, you're subconsciously aware of, but not actually aware of. And those are important components in the decision making. So it's interesting because you bring up specifically that part, right? The intuition part. And I think intuition, I, I agree with you. We shouldn't ignore it. We should understand it and then factor it into the decision making. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Because it is something that knows sometimes much more than we know rationally. As you say, because it's not just coming out of the blue, even if it feels like that. Mm. It's usually based on a lot of learnings that we have all registered inside of ourselves. And we are not aware of all of this. It's a bit like a huge computer, <laughs> which is hiding in the background somewhere, a lot of information. And our intuition sometimes sends a warning signal if something's not the right way, even if it looks great. I had to make a few decisions in my life, professional decisions, where I, I weighed the pros and cons, but I had such a strong no-go in terms of intuition, such a strong right. one that I thought, I can't ignore that. I don't know why it's there. I really don't know. And I knew afterwards, obviously. Yes. I'm, I'm actually trying to see if I can find it. There's a really, really interesting book by Daniel Kamen. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm not sure if you've had the chance to read it. But this is that's exactly the some of the points that the book makes, which is that there are two parts of our nervous system, right? The way we think. There is the very systematic, very deliberate pros and cons way of thinking. But then there is much more of a, a surreal, much more of a gut level thinking, which is also thinking. But it's thinking that happens so fast that we're not aware of the fact that it's thinking and it's reactions. And that's the, it's the second part that has kind of helped us evolve over the thousands of years in the past, millions of years. So it's very, very important to just, again, recognize, understand, balance, and then take the best from both. It's a way of developing yourself as well to be aware of these areas, because okay. then you make much better decisions <laughs> in the long run. It will certainly shape your life in a way that you want it to be. You've been a leader in a variety of industries, in a variety of con continents even, so really across different cultures. And I would just like to hear from you, what are your main experiences or your main challenges that you might have seen in a role where you had it in the Middle East versus having it in the US or in Europe? Is there something that stood out for you in your career where you say, wow, this was a true shift. I did the same role in two different countries, but it was two different worlds. <laughs> was there something <laughs> like that? <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I think uh, any role, any area is extremely contextual, right? But what is also equally important is people are people. And even though we may have different ways of expressing ourselves, we have different ways in which we communicate at the core of it, we are all looking for the same things. So I think what is interesting and surprising is that the role, the same role can be so different but equally how very different people from very different walks of life at the core of it are very, very similar. So I think it works both ways. And uh, absolutely, look, I mean, I've had the blessing of having worked in the US, in Europe, in the Middle East, in uh, Japan. So I've had been exposed to a very, very broad range of people, working styles, et cetera, you know, all the way from extremely open to extremely closed, to very structured, to very unstructured. And I think the one thing that stands out much, much more once you've had this is if one ever hopes to be a good leader and to help create an organization that is performing above and beyond anything else, one needs to understand oneself and one needs to understand one's own strengths and one's own blind spots. And only but when one understands that and one is willing to work on that themselves, 
can they really and truly create a team and an organization that can perform at its full potential? I love what you just said. <laughs> no, it's so important. I fully agree. And so many leaders do not want to go into this area because they are afraid of what they could dig out and they don't want to look so much on themselves. I think it's absolutely key what you say, because you cannot be a good leader if you're not a good self-leader. You need to have self-leadership skills and really know yourself. Like you say, blind spots. We certainly know the model of the Johari window where you have yes. yeah, what everybody sees and knows, or you including what only others see and what only you see. And then the area where I have no idea, nobody knows. But to get more clarity and to bring just much, much more into this open area where you can see it, others can see it, being more transparent with your team is a complete way of connecting with people. It's a complete way of engaging your team. And many leaders think that they have to hide away many things like vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities or being a specific kind of leader. I'm working a lot with female leaders on the topic of just being themselves, being authentic, mm -hmm. whatever that means. It's very different, obviously, from one to another, but that makes the whole strength. So only if we go into this direction, we can deploy the potential in others. We first have to start with ourselves. And many don't yeah. do that because they think, no, 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 I'm, I have to lead others. That's my job. <laughs> and I don't have time for myself. What would you recommend to people who think, oh, no, I can't do that. I just want to lead others and I, I, I need, don't want to go there. It's a balance, right? It's a balance. Perhaps somebody else has figured out. So I cannot speak for everyone else. But what I can say is for me personally, unless my core is strong, it is tough to lead and it is tough to be there for everyone else. And equally, how would I be able to have faith in my own decisions unless I keep myself open to that feedback, right? We are all humans. We are all by design. We have imperfections. We by design do not know everything. That's just the reality. The world is becoming more and more complex, which means there are more and more situations that we are constantly put into that we may or may not have either been in before or we may or may not have the full context for. So unless we make sure we create an environment where we bring in others, we are able to Again, one, understand what those blind spots are. And even if I don't understand what those blind spots are, understand that I have blind spots and then bring in people who can help make sure that we compensate for those, right? Unless you have that, that diverse, balanced team, I guess, you know, I just don't see how one would lead in that. I certainly don't see how I would lead. So myself very, very much is, yes, I work on myself. Yes, I'd be the best, most authentic version of myself, but equally I work with people who are phenomenal and great at what they do. They're better than me in many, many cases. And jointly as a team, we perform and we deliver much higher at a much higher level than we could individually. I believe you immediately because that is the logical consequence of that. And it's certainly a, a much more joyful way of working for everybody. We as humans like to do, like to perform and like to be recognized by that performance, right? So if everybody has that ability and the opportunity to perform, then I would hope what you're saying is right, right? That it certainly becomes a much more joyous environment because suddenly you're performing at your potential. 
Yeah, exactly. You feel in the right place as well. What did you do to find, or what are you still doing to find your blind spots? I think the most important thing that I have at least said for me that works is to have open and honest communication and feedback with the teams in every direction, right? It's that 360. It's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's actually true. I think it's important to work with people who are honest with you, people who you trust, people who will be honest with you, both in a professional setting, but also I think equally in a personal setting. So outside of work, I have a, a close group of uh, confidants, of, uh, of friends, of people who I've known for years and years, including my family, who are very upfront about, let's say, areas, and perhaps a bit too upfront sometimes, about areas where they feel, no, you know what, you could do better here. And I think it's important to, again, for me to have that channel, to keep that open. So to never say, I'm done. I'm a, you know, this is the end product. It's not, it's a journey. And lifelong growth is something that we should all aim for, I think, because it's very rewarding and you cannot stop because the world continues to evolve. If you do not evolve, then you actually retrograde in reality compared to what's going on around you. Yeah, I think it's great to seek feedback. Many people don't do that because you can get any kind of feedback. So you don't only get the good things, like you say, you get some challenging feedback as well. And it's important to take that in and to take it as the famous constructive feedback that finally helps us to grow and to become a better person and to see also what we convey, how we are perceived. We don't know that. We perceive ourselves and have our lens on and it opens basically the view on us and on the world as such as well. Speaking about the world as such, <laughs> you have a great initiative running currently in your company, which is called She's Next Initiative. And I have heard that this initiative is going across different regions, different countries, and that there are very different challenges out there in these different regions. Can you give us a little bit of insight into these differences and these challenges? Sure. Look, I think um, if I look across the world, in different parts of the world, they're at different uh, stages of development, right? But what the She's Next initiative targets is it's about women entrepreneurship. And it's about creating a platform where women entrepreneurs can come. And if they choose, they have the ability to get coaching, mentoring, as well as the ability to network and, and have some funding to create that platform for them and to allow them to, again, bring their best selves forward and to be able to take it and, and use it to grow. Now, this is the first time we're doing it in this part of the world. It's something we've done for several years in other parts of the world globally. In the UAE, this is the first, in, the, in the GCC, I should say, Saudi and UAE, it's the first time we're doing it. And we are inviting all women out there, all businesses that are majority women owned to apply if they are interested. And through this platform, they will have access to coaching, to funding, as well as to a network of partners who can help them grow, who can help provide that environment for them, who can help give them that feedback and who can help direct that future journey. It's a year long program and we'll, we'll probably end up picking about 10 people per country. And it's uh, something that I'm personally super, super interested and super excited about. There are some, I mean, I could quote numbers, right? There are numbers out there around the number of businesses that are women-owned, I think one in four, but the funding that goes to women-owned businesses is far, far less, less than one in 10. So I mean, we could talk about that, but the reality is talking about that only does so much. 
I want to focus on doing something about it. And that's what this platform is. So I'm extremely excited about this. And again, I'm equally excited about the fact that Visa has such platforms and, and walks the walk and creates these opportunities for women entrepreneurship to really flourish. And I think it's so much needed because as you say, financing for women or future women CEOs is so rare and it's so hard to get it. I mean, I heard so many stories around this all around the world. It's just incredible how far behind that is in terms of, if you look at the sheer numbers, it's really shocking. As you say, it's one out of 10, sometimes it's only 5% or even less. It's crazy. We have women in this audience who are in the earlier years of their career, who are very highly qualified, ambitious to go for something great, whatever that is for them. What would be a one tip or big advice that you could give them right now? That they should tap into what they believe and find out what they're passionate about. And then given the context of their realities, they should focus on that. They should choose their own path. And I think that's the most important thing. I think if a woman chooses to stay at home, there's nothing wrong with that. If a woman chooses to go conquer the world, if you will, there's nothing wrong with that. It's her choice. Again, within the context of her realities. So I think that will be my one biggest piece of advice. Really, truly, under it, and it, we should all look inside ourselves and understand what is it that we want to do? What is it that we want to accomplish? And when we know what that is and what the right solution is for us, we should then just go for it. Just go for it. Surround yourself by people who will help you get there. But just make sure it's, it is what that woman wants. And there is no right or wrong. There are different answers based on every woman in every situation as there are for every man and every other human being. Thank you very much, Saida. That was a powerful message for the audience. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. Do you want to get free access to my ebook, Top 10 Achievers Lessons? To get your free ebook, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Then send me a screenshot of your review to my email address, contact at ulrikaseminati.com and I will send you your ebook straight away. This was another episode of Empowering Female Leaders. What are the questions and topics in female leadership that you are interested in? Let me know in the comments on YouTube and Instagram or join our LinkedIn group. I'm excited to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe for new talks with inspiring women from all around the globe. Thank you for listening.